Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's show, we'll hear from Karen DeVito, one of the delegates aboard the Canadian boat to Gaza, who was recently released from captivity after being boarded by Israeli forces. We'll hear from Toronto Star columnist Thomas Wolcombe about the Eurozone's approach to bailing out the crippled Greek economy. And Martine Eloi of Collectif Echec à la Guerre explains the appeal of the Remembrance Day White Poppy campaign. Due to technical difficulties, we are unable to provide you with the alert headlines for this week. Here's Around the Left for the week of November 10th, 2011. The School of Communication at Simon Fraser University, OpenMedia.ca, and the Vancouver Public Library present Media Democracy Day Vancouver 2011, taking place November 11th to 13th at various locations throughout the city. This year will feature keynote speakers, interactive panels, and hands-on workshops focused on critical analysis of media policy citizen, and alternative media production, and the transformation of the media system to make it more diverse and representative. All events are free and open to the public, but seating is limited. For more information or to register, visit mediademocracyday2011.eventbrite.com. Indigenous Sovereignty Week gathers people together and works toward building a cross-Canada movement for Indigenous rights, self-determination, and justice for Indigenous communities. Indigenous Sovereignty Week Toronto 2011 will begin the week of November 14th and will continue over the course of two weeks until November 27th. This year's theme is Celebrating Community Victories, Standing Up to the Harper Threat. For more information on events and locations, go to www.defendersoftheland.org Toronto. The organizing committee for the 7th annual Winnipeg Transgender Day of Remembrance is delighted to invite you to a free screening of the film Two Spirits in room 2M70 at the University of Winnipeg on November 18th at 7 o'clock p.m. Immediately following the screening, there will be an opportunity to participate in a gently facilitated discussion about the film. Light refreshments will be provided free of charge. Find out more about the movie at twospirits.org or search for the Two Spirits film screening event on Facebook. Coups, Free Trade, and Human Rights, a public forum on the changing face of Canadian foreign policy in Latin America and the Caribbean, will take place Friday, November 18th from 7 o'clock p.m. to 10 o'clock p.m. at Bayet Zatoun House, 612 Markham Street in Toronto. Organized by Common Frontiers, Toronto Haiti Action Committee, and Latin American and Caribbean Solidarity Network, the forum will feature guest speakers Betty Matamoros, a Honduran-based social activist, and Kevin Edmonds, a U of Toronto PhD student and freelance journalist who has traveled to and reported on Haiti. Admission is free. Check out the event page on Facebook for more details. Class dismissed. Capital's War on Workers and Democracy. The Parkland Institute's Fall Conference of 2011 will take place November 18th to 20th 
at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. The conference will explore the current attack on workers and unions, the accompanying attack on democracy, and how capital is working to hinder real action to protect our common environment. For more information, please visit parklandinstitute.ca slash fallconference2011. Meals for a Mine-Free World, a spaghetti supper fundraiser for the Canadian Landmine Foundation, will take place November 22nd at 6 o'clock p.m. at the Transcona Memorial United Church. The guest speaker will be Wendy Hayward, a board member of the Canadian Landmine Foundation who spent part of the last year working in Kandahar. Tickets are $10 and can be ordered through the Transcona United Church office at 222-1331. That's all for Around the Left for the week of November 10th, 2011. Last Friday, November the 4th, the Canadian boat to Gaza, the Tahrir, was intercepted by Israeli defense forces. The travelers aboard the boat alleged that they were dealt with roughly by the Israeli forces. Uh, one was even tasered, and all of them have <clears throat> all of them have been detained. They just recently released uh, this as of Tuesday night, Athens time. They released uh, Canadian Karen DeVito uh, from captivity. Karen DeVito is a um, someone who's been active with the peace movement. She was uh, a delegate on the Tahrir during the uh, July uh, attempt to get a boat to Gaza. And uh, she's going to tell us a little bit about her experience, her encounter uh, with the Israeli forces and uh, detention and uh, prospects going forward as far as the uh, justice movement is concerned. So, Karen DeVito, uh, you're joining us from Istanbul, correct? Michael. Thank you for calling me here in Istanbul on my first day of freedom. Well, thank you for, for joining us uh, so soon after you're being released, and uh, it's uh, what I understand is a very late hour for you. Um, could you maybe just uh, share with our listeners uh, your first encounter with the Israeli forces uh, this last Friday? Uh, how did that go? Yes, I, I'd like to describe that. I First, because I'm here in Turkey, I really want to extend my thanks to the Turkish people. I'm so grateful to be here at the moment. And really, they understand the issue we're working on. They understand the and support Palestinian right to self-determination. They really get what our uh, freedom waves are about and what our voyage was about. Um, so it's, I'm really glad to be here and to be talking to you from Istanbul. Um, our encounter with... Um, with the uh, with the uh, Israeli Navy, um, first of course we we saw their ships on the horizon, um, and then uh, after some time there was radio contact. Of course, the thing is that we had pretended to be ordinary tourists going on a day trip to Greece, and then, as you know. We set out for Gaza, and uh, the, the previous night we had hoped that uh, that we would make it, but there was a lot of trepidation because they have seized ships quite far out in international waters, and we when we were 100 miles away, 
it, it was dark. We really were afraid of being boarded in the dark. But when the day came and it hadn't happened, we were really ecstatic. And when David Heap announced we're 50 miles out, there was a lot of joy. But soon after that, we saw the ships. There was contact. There was boarding. And as much as we pretended to be tourists, Israel pretends to be the only democracy in the Middle East, and its military pretends that it maintains peace and order. But actually, what we experienced was violence and disorder. So uh, could you tell us about uh, when uh, you, you were intercepted by the Israeli forces and, and how did they, uh, they dealt with your uh, colleagues uh, rather well, roughly, right? For, uh, for these two not very big boats, a day ferry and a smaller private yacht carrying roughly 12 passengers each, there were three large warships um, and maybe 15 other boats, including some inflatables, filled with um, heavily armed commandos um, and um, water cannons. Uh, there was some communication, a brief negotiation indicating that maybe we'd be allowed to pass, but that was not going to happen. We were sprayed with water cannons. The Irish ship was, uh, we were circled, we were pushed close together, so close we collided. Um, we were boarded with guns put in our faces. Um, it was very, very disorganized, different directions being shouted at us, water being sprayed at us. Um, we saw the Irish boat being filled with water and foundering, and um, we couldn't really we couldn't really observe too well because we had guns on us. We were trying to do what we were told, but it was so chaotic. Um, it, it it really was was really hard to keep uh, keep our heads up keep our heads up and look to see what was happening everywhere. So. All I can tell you is what I saw and heard, and that is that a couple of... One person was tasered. Uh, that David Heap? David Heap was tasered. Uh, they were very rough taking some of the people off the boat. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, the fact is that they were filming us. There were soldiers with cameras on their helmets to show that they weren't really injuring us very much. You know, as a, as a political prisoner, I saw violence and disorder and racism. But, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones. We were among the lucky ones. The military was trying to show how careful they were with us and how they subdued some peace activists. But, you know, let's face it. I'm a, a, I'm a, I'm a white North American woman with gray hair. In other words, an old lady. No one wants to be seen hitting someone like that. But thousands of other Palestinians of Palestinians are, are, are held political prisoners. And they're not so lucky because no one's really watching when they're mm -hmm. taken and held. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you want to mention briefly uh, that the, you 
I mean, if you're saying that the Israeli soldiers are, are portraying you folks as uh, being dealt with uh, nicely, and or at least what they caught on camera, but uh, was there anything that maybe cameras can't quite capture, like your the, the, the conditions of your detention that uh, uh, might uh, disturb any of our listeners? Well, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with prison, but... As far as I know, it's nasty. <laughs> and all you have to do is read about, read stories about prison or read the news about what happens in prisons, and you pretty well have it accurately. I heard from the men's wing, which is far away, I heard screams at night. I heard children screaming at night, and then women screaming at night, and guards shouting at them. But this happens in prison everywhere. What? Um... Cameras don't catch that. Mm-hmm. Cameras caught our arrival. Um, cameras, cameras, but cameras are not catching what's going on behind closed doors. And thousands of Palestinians have that knowledge of what goes on behind closed doors. And it's probably worse than what we experienced. Could you talk about your uh, attempts to uh, contact Canadian consular officials or, or any Canadian officials to uh, inform them of the situation? Uh, uh, I was held for 48 hours before I got to make any phone calls, but our organizers, um, the Canadian consul, appeared um, appeared the second day I was in prison, and I was taken out to see the consul. And our meeting was watched from outside by prison guards. So yes, our consul did come and uh, and do what he could do, as did the Irish consul and the American consul. However, um, it seems that at least 16 activists and journalists from Ireland, the UK, Australia, and Canada, as far as I know, are still being held. And the 72-hour 72 hours 72 limit for holding someone um, after being detained passed the night that I was released. Mm-hmm. Furthermore... We were told that if we signed a paper the first night we arrived in court, which really wasn't court, it was just a man behind a desk clicking a computer and giving us documents to sign that were written in Hebrew and an English document not filled out, but that was supposed to be a translation. If you signed those documents, you would be deported within 24 hours, as I understand it from Ehab Lutayef, who I saw briefly during my imprisonment, he signed that first night, but not only has it been more than 72 hours, he's still there as far as I know. You know Ehab was... People are working to have him released. Mm-hmm. So Ehab is, just to, for clarification's sake, Ehab is one of the other um, delegates aboard Ehab the... Ehab Lotayev and David Heap are the other two Canadians, and as far as I know right now, they haven't been released. We've been watching a uh, website and keeping in touch with our colleagues. But... You know, thousands of Palestinian families have this same situation, but no consulate to tell them where their loved ones are. Mm-hmm. 
Now, this uh, the, the the apparent unwillingness of uh, the Canadian officials to uh, advocate for uh, Canadians who have not apparently done anything uh, you know, blatant. I mean, you you were all nonviolent, and you were bringing aid to the people. That's of correct. Vietnam. We were all nonviolent. So. Um, are you surprised by the behavior of the Canadian government in this regard? Well, the, the, the policy of the Canadian government is something a little different than um, its representatives in Israel, um, I think. The individual who helped me uh, did what he could, but we have to understand that he's inside Israel. As an, as an individual, as, a, as an, a representative of Canada, he can only do as much as, 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 as his superiors can, will allow him to do. And he did organize my release. I did agree to buy my own ticket. Hmm. Israel did not pay for my ticket, nor did the Canadian government. My husband bought my ticket from Istanbul. I can only guess that that's why I am here, and my colleagues are still there. But as far as I know, no, the Canadian government has not offered to, to buy any tickets for anyone. Um, they, and and uh, the fellow who helped me was very kind. He brought cash for me to use in case I need it to buy a visa to get back to Turkey. They will provide up to $400 Canadian, but uh, you need to sign that you will pay it back, and I was more than willing to I, if I had to buy another Turkish visa. Fortunately, the Turkish administration understood really well and said, no, no, of course, you, you entered before, that visa is still good. Welcome back to Turkey. Thank you for what you did. So... That's only my experience. I really can't. When the others get out, you may want to speak to them, and they can tell you exactly what happened. I only know. Um, I only know what our man in Tel Aviv um, tried to do for me, and he was he was very assiduous in calling my husband and trying to arrange for me to get a phone call. He was really surprised that I'd not been allowed a phone call after all that time. It took another day, even after he knew, before I got a phone call. I was allowed a phone call, which was recorded, and I was told what to say, what not to say, and I knew enough not to speak French to my husband because uh, that call would be cut off. It had to be in English, and it was recorded. Okay, Karen, um, I really appreciate your, your sharing this story with us. Is, is there... Uh, maybe a, a last request or, or a message for the uh, Canadian people before we leave this interview? Well, for the Canadian people, I would say this. I know that many of them support us. Look around globally. Hundreds of thousands of ordinary people are becoming activists. Just look at the news today. And hundreds of thousands of people around the world are, are organizing and they're energized to work to change the behavior of the state of Israel. Sometimes ordinary people do what their governments have not done. Our government will catch up to us one day. I hope they do. But what people are doing now is organizing 
more ships to sail. This doesn't stop that. More ships are coming. I can't say when, but believe me, they are coming. Plus, there's the boycott, disaster, and sanction movement. There are consumer boycott movements. People are, are, are getting interested, looking up. They're boycotting produce, fruits, vegetable, cosmetics from Israel. There's corporate and individual divestment from investments in Israeli companies. There are protests at cultural events. This is about changing the behavior of the state of Israel. And really, as much as it is for Palestinians, it's for the rest of the world, and it's also for ordinary Israelis. Uh, at the moment, the way things are, freedom rules the waves. Israel waves the rules. And we invite people to change us, change that, and help us work to do that. I think that's my message to Canadians and, and to everyone. Karen DeVito, it's uh, been a pleasure speaking with you, and I uh, appreciate uh, hearing that um, account. So, uh, well. Uh, Thank you. It's been a pleasure <laughs> hearing a voice from home, Michael. Well, um, bonjour, and. Uh, We'll hope, well, we'll see you uh, back in Canada at some point, I hope. Soon, yes. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Karen DeVito, uh, recently released from uh, her uh, detention by Israeli authorities. She spoke to us from uh, her hotel in Istanbul. <laughs> Well, the European financial situation seems to be rapidly spinning out of control. The Greek prime minister has uh, recently called for a referendum on the new bailout package only to withdraw that referendum shortly thereafter. So how are European powers dealing with uh, the debt crisis gripping Greece and uh, the rest of the uh, Union? Joining us on the line from Toronto is columnist Thomas Walcom. He uh, writes for the Toronto Star and has uh, recently wrote a, an article called Euro The Eurozone Cure Could Be Worse Than the Disease. So, uh, Thomas, uh, welcome to Alert. Thanks. It's good to be on your show. Okay. Could you maybe just uh, explain uh, what you mean by the, the cure uh, being worse than the disease? Well, first, un understand that the Europe the Eurozone nations, the European nations like France and Germany, aren't particularly interested in Greece. They're interested in protecting the, the common currency, the euro. So their main focus is on making sure that the currency survives. And if Greece has to go down in flames as part of that, well, that's just that's just a cost. So that's something that you 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 have to keep in in mind in all, in all of this. And, and other countries, too. I don't think they care much about Portugal or Spain, should they get into trouble. A little more Italy, perhaps, but that's for different reasons. Mm -hmm. So what, uh, what is the cure for the Eurozone? Well, the cure for the Eurozone, uh, for, at least for these countries that have uh, accumulated large debts, is, uh, is austerity. That's the cure that the, that the French and Germans demand, and it's that the IMF demands, the International Monetary Fund. And what does austerity means that, uh, that there are cutbacks in the public sector, which is a big employer in Greece. 
it means that their tax increases, although these tax increases aren't necessarily borne by the people who can afford to pay taxes, but by the people who already do pay taxes in Greece, that's apparently a relatively um, small proportion of, the, of, I guess, what you'd call the middle-class population. Mm. And uh, job cuts. So is that good? Well, not for the Greeks. I don't think it is necessarily. And I'm not even sure that ultimately it will work for the Eurozone as a whole. So uh, in that sense, the, the, the cure... I think is is counterproductive for the whole, obviously for Greece, but I think it's also for the entire zone. Was there anything unique about the way Greece entered into this uh, contract with the European Union that uh, that may have made it uh, exceptional in terms of uh, uh, this whole economic situation? Well, it's not so much Greece being part of the European Union, which is it has been part of the EU and its predecessor for a long time, it was Greece's decision to join the Eurozone, which is a subset of the European Union. There are 17 nations within the EU who have the common currency, the euro, and who've gotten rid of their own currency to do that. And the problem with that, the problem, and, and it was well known when this began back, I think this was, this uh, the euro really dates back to about 1991, when the European EU nations signed the Maastricht Treaty that allowed the euro to be set up, and it was set up like a few years later. But the problem with the common currency is that it take is that it covers countries that are completely disparate, completely different. So the economy of Greece has almost nothing in common with the economy of Germany, for example, and the economy of Portugal has almost nothing in common with the economy of Finland, but they're all in the euro. And in a different circumstance, that might have worked. Canada, for instance, has a common currency, the Canadian dollar, although we have a lot of different regions. But we are, in fact, one one country. And so if things get out of out of sorts in one part of the country, if the one if the economy in one part of the, the country goes 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 belly up, then there can be transfers of money from other parts of the country. And we see that happen all the time. It's through things like unemployment insurance, or employment insurance, as they call it now, and welfare, these kind of transfer payments, these kinds of things that exist. But there's nothing like that in the Eurozone. There's nothing like that at all, because nations are still independent countries, but they have this common currency. So the common currency was, in a sense, doomed from the beginning. And a lot of economists noted that at the time, that it just it wasn't something that could plausibly work if there were ever a crisis. And the crisis has happened. Greece in particular, probably for its own reasons, never should have joined the euro. Uh, Greece wanted to. I think it, it got onto the euro late in about 2001, I think. But, uh, and, it got, and it joined the euro for its own, for really, I think, many for political reasons. The, the Cold War was finished. Greece was afraid it would be, a lot of Greeks were afraid they'd be left behind. Uh, they, Greece has always been, always been part of NATO and part of the anti-communist alliance, really, in, in Europe since the Greek Civil War in the, uh, in the end of the 40s. But the end of the Cold War meant that Greece might be, be viewed by the rest of Europe as just one of those other Balkan countries, like Bulgaria or Macedonia. And the Greeks found this quite terrifying. 
So the Greeks were very anxious to be as much a part of Europe as they could be. And as a result, they were very anxious to take on the common currency, although I don't think they understood the price that would occur if they did that. But Greece wasn't really prepared to become part of a common currency. All the problems that came up in the last year were well known back in the 90s and in 2001 when Greece joined the euro. It's just, it, uh, it had a big public sector, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but the other euro nations didn't like that. It uh, kept very dodgy statistics, actually, and it had real problems collecting taxes. And it still does. All of those things still exist. So Greece, Greece joined the euro. It probably shouldn't have. The euro itself, I think, was, was a flawed concept. It was even more flawed to have a country like Greece join, but they did. And now it's very difficult to take that thing apart. It was easy enough to get countries to join the common currency. It's going to be very, very difficult to get countries to leave the common currency in a, in, in a manner that doesn't completely destroy them. Tom, This is kind of the, the, the problem that Greece has gone into now, I think. Tom, uh, the uh, Prime Minister of Greece uh, had fielded the idea of a referendum and then withdrew it. What is your sense of uh, the, the, atti- the, the, the attitude of the ordinary Greek citizens? Are they, are, are they view- the viewpoint that belonging to the Eurozone, that, that the price of, of belonging to the Eurozone is worth the, uh, the, 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 the austerity measures that are being thrown at them? Well, let me start, first of all, by saying I'm not in Greece. And so uh, I, I'm, I, I can only gauge this by remote control, if you like, by, 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 by what I read. The polling that's taken there suggests that the Greeks don't like the austerity measures, but really like being part of the euro. My own view is that, is that Papandreou's idea of holding a referendum was a good one, because I, I think if you're going to, I mean, you could argue whether or not you, you should have these austerity measures. I, I don't think you do. They should. You should do that. But if the Greeks want to do that, and the Greek government wants to do that, then the only way it could do it legitimately would be if you had something like a referendum where people had, where people were given a choice to vote on it. And it's quite possible that had Greeks seen this as a referendum on the euro itself, rather than just the austerity measures, a majority might have gone for it. So I think Papandreou had kind of a clever idea but he was shot down by the other Euro nations, particularly France and Germany. Hmm. Well, so given the, uh, as the current uh, situation is unraveling, I I wonder if just as a final parting thought, what are your uh, thoughts about how this uh, situation is going to affect Canada, especially after the uh, finance ministers recently announced that uh, their their expectations of growth have been, uh, of growth in, in Canada have been reduced? Nobody, the th- nobody knows. I mean, that's the the real answer is nobody knows because you're in the in the world now of a potential financial chaos. And if there is real financial chaos, i.e., if the banks of Western Europe and Greece, and now Italy, by the way, are so tightly aligned, and depending on the relationship between the banks in North America and Europe. You could have a real another financial crisis of the kind we had in 2008-9, and possibly even worse. And if that happens, all bets are off because it's very hard to predict what will happen. All those growth predictions, you know, going from 2.9 to 2.2 or, or whatever that Flaherty announced, uh, the, the finance minister Jim Flaherty, 
talked about today in Calgary don't mean much if everything changes. And economists will tell you, econometricians will tell you that, that they, that, that they can't really make predictions if everything changes. And if there's a real crisis in Europe, everything, <coughs> excuse me, everything could change. And that would, uh, that would have tremendous effects here. Now, if Europe muddles through, and everything that all the optimists hope for works out, well, maybe what happens here is we go through a slow period, maybe a small recession, and then back to the world we're in now, which is a world of not very much growth, kind of high, but not massively high unemployment. Well, Thomas Wilcombe, these are very uh, intriguing uh, insights and perspectives. Thank you for sharing this with Alert. And uh, that was Thomas Wolcombe uh, talking to us from Toronto. He is a columnist with the Toronto Star. On Remembrance Day, should you wear a red poppy or a white poppy? Many may not even be aware there's a choice. The white poppy has been around almost as long as the red, though its existence has been plagued with some controversy. This year, Collectif Échec à la Guerre in Quebec ordered 5,000 white poppies from England where the campaign originated and have already had to place another order for more. So here to talk with us a little bit about the white poppy campaign is a member of Collectif Échec à la Guerre, uh, Martine Elois. Welcome to Alert Radio, Martine. Good evening. So can you first start off by explaining uh, what is Collective uh, Echec à la Guerre and what is the, the White Poppy campaign as well? The Collective Echec à la Guerre is a coalition of groups that came together in the months preceding um, the declaration of war in Iraq in an attempt to mobilize um, public opinion against uh, such a war. And it's a, coal, a vast coalition um, of uh, community organizations, women's groups, faith-based groups, unions, international sol- solidarity organizations. So um, it's not a peace group as such. Like It's really a, a coalition of groups of civil society um, that uh, occasionally uh, take positions uh, on questions of war. And what is the White Poppy campaign? Can you give us a little bit of background about yes, the White well, Poppy? Yes, well, in fact, the White Poppy campaign um, uh, first came to be in 1933 uh, in England. It was after World War One, and there was like the specter of a possibility of another world war. And um, women who were mothers, sisters, or widows of, um, of uh, soldiers who had uh, been killed in the First World War, didn't want this to happen again, and decided to mobilize. And they worked, um, they campaigned against the arms arms trade, and they worked on socioeconomic and political conditions that promote wars to try and prevent the the, uh, coming of a Second World War. Uh, They decided to launch a white poppy campaign um, in order to um, make public their their determination to work for peace and to oppose war, um, and uh, it's been going. It's been carrying on. Been carried on since then by the Peace Pledge Union in uh, London, uh, who have um, carried 
the tradition of the white poppies. So how does the message of the white poppy differ from that of the traditional red poppy that most people are used to seeing around Remembrance Day? Well, we don't we don't um, think the two should be in opposition, but the the problem, if I may say, with the red poppy campaign and official commemorations is that they focus uh, only on uh, soldiers who have, were uh, killed in the first uh, two wars, um, which we sympathize with entirely. However, um, in contemporary wars, uh, the number of civilians who uh, lose their lives is far greater than the number of soldiers, and we wish to draw attention on all victims of wars, uh, all victims of war with this uh, white poppy campaign. And we think that we the ceremonies around um, Remembrance Day should not be used in any way to justify or to, um, uh, to glorify uh, current wars and, the, and to justify the death toll of uh, current and future wars. So how do you respond to the accusations from, for example, veterans um, that that claim that the white poppy somehow dishonors fallen fallen soldiers, which has been a main part of the controversy? Well, you know, here in Quebec, I know there are people who uh, decide to wear the red poppy and the white poppy. The red poppy to um, remember that soldiers have been killed, and the white poppy to remember that civilians are also killed. In the mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think they should be seen in opposition, but there is a message with the white poppy that um, wars uh, should be avoided and not glorified. Do you think that Remembrance Day, the message of it, has changed in any way in the post-9-11 era? Well, I can't say that... um, uh, I can't say the 9/11 era so much as the fact that the um, uh, it's clear that the conservative government um, puts much more emphasis on um, the militarization of our economy. On uh, the, um, the uh, military spendings have just spiraled almost out of control. Um, there is a, a much greater presence of. Of Canada's um, Canada's role, not only under the present Conservative government, but even with the previous uh, Liberal government, um, changed. Uh, Canada changed uh, in a sense, became a more openly um, militaristic uh, foreign policy, and uh, in that sense, um, often ceremonies are used, um, unfortunately to uh, justify present wars and not just to remember soldiers who have uh, lost their lives on the battlefield. What needs to be done to foster a culture of peace in this country instead? I would say the first thing is to to, uh, reduce military spending. Um, What we could do in terms of uh, solving important social problems uh, with the money that is being spent on the military is just phenomenal. Things like uh, hunger, uh, education, health care, would just, a lot of problems could be solved with just a part of the money that's being spent on the military. Um, And uh, and military spending has just, as I say, spiraled out of control in the past uh, past years. So that would be the first thing. Well, thank you for, for, for speaking with us today and giving us so much information on the White Poppy campaign. 
And uh, we will see, you know, how well the campaign does in future years. Hopefully it grows. It's my pleasure. And um, you said earlier in the show that uh, we had ordered 5,000. We had to order more. We presently have sold 7,500, and we have ordered another 2,500. So we're close to the 10,000 for first year, and we're hoping to make this an annual campaign. Well, that's quite the achievement. So good luck on that in the future as well. Thank you. We've been speaking with Martine Elois, a member of the Collectif Echec à la Guerre, about the White Poppy campaign. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon, and on this week's show, a retrospective of songwriter Tom Lear. Professor of mathematics at MIT, he reached out and he wrote amazing songs about the world as he saw it. He wrote very political songs and very funny songs, and sometimes he managed to write a very funny political song. So here he is with one of his best songs, Werner von Braun. Gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. Nazi schmazi, says Werner von Braun. Don't say that he's hypocritical. Say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? <laughs> That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. Some have harsh words for this man of renown, but some think our attitude should be one of gratitude, like the widows and cripples in old London town who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun. You too may be a big hero once you've learned to count backwards to zero. In German or English, I know how to count down. And I'm learning Chinese, says Werner von Braun. You know, every great war produces its great hit songs. And after each war, we like to gather around the piano or the guitar and play these songs. Uh, we enjoy the songs because they remind us of how much we enjoyed the war. Now, World War III is almost upon us, as you know, by uh, popular demand, it seems. And uh, it occurred to me that if any songs are going to come out of World War III, we better start writing them now. So I have one here. This is, uh, this is a song that some of the boys will have sung to their mothers as they will have gone bravely off to World War III. There's one reference in here that I should explain. There is a reference to our leading television news commentators, Chet Huntley and David Brinkley. I feel that this is appropriate because as you know, World War III will be the first world war to be seen on television. I certainly hope that we all have color television by then. So long, Mom. I'm off to drop the bomb. So don't wait up for me. But while you swelter down there in your shelter, you can watch me on your TV. 
While we're attacking frontally, watch brinkily and huntily, describing contrapuntally the cities we have lost. No need for you to miss a minute of the agonizing Holocaust. Yeah! Johnny Jones, he was a U.S. pilot, and no shrinking violet was he. He was mighty proud when World War III was declared. He wasn't scared, no siree. And this is what he said on his way to Armageddon. So long, Mom, I'm off to drop the bomb, so don't wait up. Remember, mommy, I'm off to get a commie, so send me a salami and try to smile somehow. I'll look for you when the war is over, an hour and a half from now. That was Tom Lear with So Long, Mom, and before that, his classic, Werner von Braun. You know, one of the things about Tom Lear is he arrived at a time when the folk movement was really arriving. And he was very influential in the folk movement, but he sure liked to make fun of it. We are the folk song army. Every one of us cares. We all hate poverty, war, and injustice, unlike the rest of you squares. There are innocuous folk songs, yeah, but we regard them with scorn. The folks who sing them have no social conscience, why, they don't even care if Jimmy crack corn. If you feel dissatisfaction, strum your frustrations away. Some people may prefer action, but give me a folk song any old day. The tune don't have to be clever. And it don't matter if you put a couple extra syllables into a line It sounds more ethnic if it ain't good English And it don't even gotta rhyme Excuse me, rhyme Remember the war against Franco That's the kind where each of us belongs Though he may have won all the battles We had all the good songs so join in the folk song army Guitars are the weapons we bring To the fight against poverty, war, and injustice Ready, aim, sing For many years now, Mr. Danny Kay, who has been my particular idol since childbirth, has been doing a routine... <laughs> a routine about the great Russian director Stanislavski and the secret of success in the acting profession. And I thought it would be interesting to, to adapt this idea to the, uh, <laughs> to the uh, field of mathematics. I always like to make explicit the fact that before I went off not too long ago to fight in the trenches, I was a mathematician by profession. I don't like people to get the idea that I have to do this for a living. I mean, it isn't as though I had to do this, you know. I could be making, oh, $3,000 a year just teaching. <laughs> be that as it may, some of you may have had occasion to run into mathematicians and to wonder, therefore, how they got that way. 
appear in partial explanation, perhaps, is the story of the great Russian mathematician Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky. Who made me the genius I am today, the mathematician that others all quote? Who's the professor that made me that way? the greatest that ever got chalk on his coat. One man deserves the credit, one man deserves the blame, and Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name. Hey, Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky. I am never forget the day I first meet the great Lobachevsky. In one word, he told me secret of success in mathematics. Plagiarize. Plagiarize. Let no one else's work evade your eyes. Remember why the good Lord made your eyes. So don't shade your eyes, but plagiarize, plagiarize, plagiarize. Only be sure always to call it, please, research. And ever since I meet this man, my life is not the same. And Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name. Hey, Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky. I never forget the day. I'm given first original paper to write. It was on analytic and algebraic topology of local Euclidean metrization of infinitely differentiable Riemannian manifold. Boy, <laughs> This I know from nothing. <laughs> but I think of great Lobachevsky and I get idea. <laughs> I have a friend in Minsk who has a friend in Pinsk, whose friend in Omsk has friend in Tomsk with friend in Akmolinsk. His friend in Alexandrovsk has friend in Petropavlovsk, whose friend somehow is solving now the problem in Yepopetrovsk. And when his work is done, haha, begins the fun. From Yepopetrovsk to Petropavlovsk, by way of Ilyisk and Novorossiysk, to Alexandrovsk, to Akmolinsk, to Tomsk, to Omsk, to Pinsk, to Minsk, to me the news will run. Yes, to me the news will run. Ah, by morning and night and afternoon and pretty soon my name in Yepopetrovsk is cursed when he finds out I published first and who made me a big success and brought me wealth and fame Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name Hey Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky I am never forget the day my first book is published every chapter I stole from somewhere else index I copy from old Vladivostok telephone directory <laughs> This book, this book was sensational. Pravda, ah, Pravda. Pravda said, Jill Bilka Ralikagdatar, Primyam Blachajila, it stinks. But, Izvestia. Izvestia said, Yai Dukudasan Tsaridyot Peshkom, it stinks. Metro Goldwyn Moskva bought the movie rights for six million rubles, changing title to The Eternal Triangle. With Brigitte Bardot playing part of Hypotenuse. And who deserves the credit? And who deserves the blame? Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name. I always love that song, Lobachevsky. It's a great chance to practice my Russian accent. And before that, Folk Song Army. One of the things about Lear, of course, is that he was a very serious human being, and he looked at politics in a very, very serious way. And he was very clear about the problems that his own country was creating in the world. When someone makes a move of which we don't approve, who is it that always intervenes? UN and OAS, they have their place, I guess. But first, 
send the Marines. We'll send them all we've got. John Wayne and Randolph Scott. Remember those exciting fighting scenes? To the shores of Tripoli, but not to Mississippi. What do we do? We send the Marines. For might makes right, until they've seen the light. They've got to be protected, all their rights respected, till somebody we like can be elected. Members of the Corps all hate the thought of war. They'd rather kill them off by peaceful means. Stop calling it aggression. Ooh, we hate that expression. We only want the world to know that we support the status quo. They love us everywhere we go. So when in doubt, send the Marines. got the bomb and that was good cause we love peace and motherhood then Russia got the bomb but that's okay cause the balance of powers maintained that way who's next France got the bomb but don't you grieve cause they're on our side I believe China got the bomb but have no fears they can't wipe us out for at least five years who's next Then Indonesia claimed that they were going to get one any day. South Africa wants two, that's right. One for the black and one for the white. Who's next? Egypt's gonna get one too, just to use on you know who. So Israel's getting tense, wants one in self-defense. The Lord is our shepherd, says the psalm, but just in case, we better get a bomb. <laughs> Who's the next? Luxembourg is next to go, and who knows, maybe Monaco. We'll try to stay serene and calm when Alabama gets the bomb. Who's next? Who's next? Who's next? Who's next? That was Who's Next, and before that, Send the Marines. And now to finish off the show this week, my favorite Tom Lear song. This song played on radio in 1967, very briefly, and then certain people just forced it off the air. But here it is, Tom Lear with The Vatican Rag. <laughs> Bow your head with great respect and genuflect, genuflect, genuflect. Make do whatever steps you want if you have cleared them with the pontiff. Everybody say his own Kyrie, lay his own doing the Vatican rag. Get in line in that processional. Step into that small confessional. There's the guy who's got religion. I'll tell you if your sin's original. If it is, try playing it safer. Drink the wine and chew the wafer. Two, four, six, eight. Time to transubstantiate. So get down upon your knees. Fiddle with your rosaries. Bow your head with great respect and genuflect, genuflect, genuflect. Make a cross on your abdomen when in Rome. Do like a Roman Ave Maria Gee, it's good to see you Getting ecstatic and sort of dramatic And doing the Vatican rag That was the Vatican rag Seven songs by Tom Lear What a good week 
See you next week. Solidarity. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear the show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Andrew Valpi, assisted by Selena Surik. Around the Left, prepared by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. 